You're listening to a message from Christian Life Ministries in Coventry, a dynamic, growing church in the heart of the nation. We pray that God will speak to you through this word and impact your life for His glory. It's so great to be here in the room with some of the CLM family. And hasn't it been so encouraging? I know it's been mentioned already in the service, but the prospect of restrictions being lifted in the months ahead, the thought that it might not be too much longer till we can gather as church and raise our voices together and sing and praise and make noise. I know for myself, I long for that. I know speaking to many of you in the recent weeks, just how much we all miss corporate worship together. Well, it's my privilege to open the word this morning and to speak to us following on from the message that Martin brought last week about standing together. I've got an imaginative title today. It's Standing Together Part Two. It took a long time to come up with that, as you can imagine. Anyway, last week, Martin, he began kind of outlining that this matter of racial justice is, as you might imagine, a justice issue, that it is a family matter, and that it is also a kingdom opportunity. And we were inspired again by that picture from Revelation 7, that snapshot of heaven that we get with the Lamb, Jesus, seated on the throne, and before him a multitude beyond counting, and we're told that it was from every nation, tribe, people, and language, worshiping together. And kids, I wonder if while I'm speaking, you could draw a picture today of that little snapshot of heaven with Jesus on the throne and people of all different kinds worshiping him together. Some might be short and tall. You might have young and old and people from all the different countries of the world worshiping Jesus together. Well, I grew up in inner city Birmingham. Yes, I am a Brummie. If you've never noticed that, if you've not picked up on it, I was Birmingham born and bred. And where I lived, there were all kinds of people. The church that I went to, was it was fairly small, it was diverse, it was eclectic, you might say. When we had shared meals, which we did fairly often together, there would always be quiche and there would always be curried goat. Both of those would be present without fail. I have memories as a teenager of going to midweek Bible study and prayer meetings. Yep, I did that as a teenager. We didn't really have a youth group. If I wanted to know God, that was how you did it. There would always be just a very small handful of people there, and most of them were West Indian ladies older than my mother. I have a very vivid memory of praying and being in a group with a lady called Josephine. Josephine was a beautiful, gentle lady from Montserrat. She knew her God, and she prayed in rhythmic, lilting patois. I was learning. She was a pro. But we prayed together. And for me, it set the trajectory of a lifetime of growing in, as a follower of Jesus alongside others different to myself, my brothers and my sisters in Christ. And as we take a little deeper look today at this idea of standing together, I wonder if you turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Why not grab a Bible, look it up on a device. We're going to read the first 16 verses of Romans chapter 12. It begins, therefore, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies 
as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body, with many members, and these members do not have all the same functions. So in Christ, though many, we form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Difficult in this season, I know. It doesn't say that, I'm just adding that in. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Amen. Well, I know there is plenty to be challenged by in those verses. And here we have the Apostle Paul. He's written chapters 1 to 11. If you've never read chapters 1 to 11 of Romans, Simply, he spends 11 chapters unpacking in depth the problem of sin and God's answer to that problem in Jesus Christ. And he comes to this point in this letter to the church in Rome, and he's addressing them as family. He says, brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, therefore, since you've been brought into this family of Christ, he says, in view of God's mercy, as a response to the kindness that you've been shown by God, He says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your worship. He says, in view of the enormity of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, which he continues to outwork through his spirit, in view of that, I'm gonna tell you, he says, it's gonna be a whole life response that is needed. That's what your worship's gonna be. It's not just gonna be about Sundays. Your worship's not just gonna be about tuning in for an hour and a quarter on a Sunday. It's not just gonna be about singing or not singing if you're here in the room and well done because it's not easy to do that. It's gonna be about a sacrifice. It's gonna be about living in the here and now but not living for yourself, it's living for him. And he begins to talk about what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. And if we will read this chapter as a whole, not with the subheadings that get added in afterwards, which sometimes help us uh, or get in the way of us reading it as a whole. If we read it like that, then it seems apparent to me that the will of God is that his people, his family, these brothers and sisters would live together as one body, that they would stand together as one body. It's why he says, so in Christ We, though many, form one body. And each member belongs to all the others. Wow. 
we who are many, many individuals, many nations, many languages, many cultures, many generations. Amongst us, there's many stories, but we who are many form one body. And the Bible tells us we belong to one another. Why is this so important in the will of God, this oneness? It seems to me that the oneness of God's people, his family, this body, it's critical to the work that Jesus left us to do. Listen with me to the prayer of Jesus. We read it in John chapter 17. These are the words of Jesus himself praying to the Father. He says, may they, that's you and me, be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me. May they be brought to complete unity so the world will know that you sent me. There is something about this unity of God's people, this oneness of the many, that enables the revelation, enables an understanding of who Jesus is and that he came from the Father. His will is that we would be one body. And Paul unpacks for us a bit of what that would look like with every member playing its part in sincere love, with devotion to one another, honoring one another above ourselves, rejoicing with those who rejoice and mourning with those who mourn. No wonder Paul begins by saying, you need to be transformed. There is a bit of work to be done. And if you look with me just at chapter two, uh, sorry, at verse two, right back at the beginning, he says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He says, what I'm asking of you is to do something that is different to what is normal in the world. He says, there is a pattern in the world that you've conformed to, but Christ's work in you is gonna do something different. And you have an active part to play in that process. This has been a pivotal scripture in my life and in my discipleship. The process of being transformed by the renewing of my mind, of taking truth and internalizing it, dealing with things that I had believed before that were not wholly true or not at all true, but had become a part of my thinking. This has been utterly key, utterly revolutionary in my discipleship journey in discovering my identity in Christ, in dealing with deep-seated insecurities, in getting to grips with who God is and being able to encounter him. I've learned the process of seeking out truth and weeding out lies and untruths that are in my thinking and replacing them with truth, knowing that life-giving transformation is always the result. And for us, as we approach this journey, of standing together as one body. Paul is helping us by indicating that we need to begin this journey by being willing to stop being conformed to the pattern of this world and to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That perhaps we need to seek out some things in our minds that are not true or not wholly true. Or maybe there's some things that we believe that are outright lies that need uprooting and replacing with what is true. Nine months ago, following the brutal murder of George Floyd, there were some conversations that went on that began to expose in me some ignorance, some gaps in my knowledge and understanding on this subject of racial injustice. If you listen to me regularly, maybe you've already picked up on those. But as I became aware of them, I began to read, to listen, to seek to learn I knew that I needed uh, to 
press into the areas where I began to see that I maybe wasn't in possession of the truth or the whole truth, that I needed to grow in understanding. I needed my mind renewing. And I began to see that for us to stand together as one body with brothers and sisters, I knew that I needed to renew my mind in what I thought and what I understood. And I am still learning. But this morning I want to share from the foundation of this scripture, these words of the Apostle Paul, but to share with us three truths about racial injustice that I have come to see are crucial for us to know and to acknowledge and to stand together as one body. So first up, the first truth is this, that racial injustice is not confined to the past. It is a current and a present reality. It's not confined to the past. Growing up in Birmingham, I went to school in Handsworth. I started secondary school in 1986. Um, I'm 45, save you doing the maths. I went to school in Handsworth. It was literally just six years after the race riots had happened there. My school was a stone's throw from Lazelle's, where there were still burned out buildings from those riots. And even though those race riots had been recent, they were still in the past. Before last year, there's only one person who shared with me their personal experience of racism. And she'd only did that after she'd known me for some considerable time. She was an utterly brilliant individual. Uh, she was uh, very, very gifted in more than one field, but she had battled with confidence all of her life. As a child, her parents were of the Windrush generation, and she'd grown up in the UK in the early 1970s, and her family had had racial slurs and animal excrement put on their front door on numerous occasions, and it had not surprisingly impacted her profoundly. But when she told me about it, it was 30 years on from when it had happened. And it already seemed that that kind of behavior had mostly ceased. And it is true that some of what took place in the 1970s and 1980s in the UK, some of the shockingly overt racism, it doesn't seem to exist in quite the same way or to the same degree now as it did then. However, that can lead us to a dangerous conclusion that maybe racial injustice is a problem of the past, and that since legislation exists to outlaw discrimination, it could be presumed by those not directly affected that racial injustice is confined to the past. But this sadly is not the case. Racial injustice is a current and a present reality. Last year when we sent out a questionnaire to the members of the church on this subject, just under 300 people replied, we're very grateful for what they shared. And we asked, amongst other things, if and where racism was experienced. And of those who answered, 63% had experienced racism at work. 63% in their day-to-day -day job. 34% who answered had experienced racism at school or college. 32% had experienced it in the process of applying for jobs. These aren't just statistics, these are brothers and sisters with whom we gather around the Lord's table. I've heard the recent experiences of professional gifted people who are part of CLM being treated terribly in their workplace. 
a Nigerian lady traveling with work to a different European context where other professional peers or so-called professional peers ignored her and refused to speak to her even when she approached them directly for no other reason than the color of her skin. Utterly outrageous. Someone else shared with me about how they'd been treated by their manager, her and some others of the same racial background as her, how they were verbally berated, treated more unfairly in rotors and planning, and at times when they raised those issues, they were asked why they simply just didn't return to the country that they had come from. I'm so grateful to those who've shared their experiences with me. So sorry to hear that that's what they experience in the here and the now. Because sadly, racial justice, racial injustice is not confined to the past. It is a present and a current reality. I know many of you brothers and sisters, you don't need me to tell you that today. You know only too well that this is so. But to stand together, we must acknowledge this truth together that racial injustice is not confined to the past. It is a current and a present reality. The second truth that I want to bring us to today, and that I think it's important for us to acknowledge, is that racial injustice is not limited to individual acts of malice, but it is structural and it is systemic. Of course, sadly, there continue to be people who act out of malice to hurt others and to hurt individuals like the experiences that I've described. But that is not the full extent of racial injustice. It goes beyond the acts of individuals and is woven into the structures and the systems of our society. Again, I know many of you, you don't need me to explain this to you. You live with it as a daily reality. But if we're to stand together, then we must understand together. Structural Racism is, is a system in which there's public policies and institutional practices, cultural representations and other norms at work in, in various and often reinforcing ways to perpetuate racial group inequity. And it has its roots in history and culture rather than in individuals. Now there is of course a vast amount of history that I do not know. Uh, even as someone who left school with an A in history GCSE, there is much even about Britain's history that I do not know. Now, I understand that a school curriculum cannot cover everything. And yet it seems to me that there were some subjects, some topics, some eras that were deliberately omitted, as if truth were not really desired. You know, until reading in the past few months, as I have sought to educate myself, until then, I knew very little about Britain's role in the transatlantic slave trade, or about the British Empire that followed. I knew little of its rise and little of its fall, and I knew virtually nothing about the nature of Britain's colonial rule. And it, it may seem uh, removed, but it's not, so just stay with me. I had not previously understood that inherent to the building of the British Empire was the establishing and the maintaining of racial hierarchy. I know it wasn't just the British, there were other European empire-building nations who did the same, but Britain's reach and influence became greater. And foundational, it seems, to the running 
of every British colony was this hierarchy in some form. With those who were assigned a racial identity as white, they were treated as superior. And those who were assigned a racial identity that was black or Asian or Arab as inferior. This is the exact opposite of what Paul calls us to in his word. He's, he's exhorting us to not think of yourself more highly than you ought or to honor one another above yourselves. And yet, this has been part of the system. This is grossly oversimplified, even to my understanding, but over the couple of decades that followed the Second World War, as the decline of the empire accelerated and former British colonies became nation states and part of the then Commonwealth, immigration from the UK began to the, to the UK began to increase from those places, kind of moving us towards the multicultural society that we are more familiar with today. And immigration legislation was grappled with constantly, as it still is. But the systems and the assumptions of British colonialism, it seems to me, were never undermined, were never called out. The use of racial hierarchy was never acknowledged, never recognized, never identified, and more importantly, never repented of. And so you might say it's a bit like seeds that might stay in the soil long after a plant has died, our society can, continues to house and to grow racial inequality through its structures and its systems that have evolved from those that were in place in the colonial era. It's perhaps why last autumn the government put out, probably not for the first time, a commission, the, the government's commission on race and ethnic disparities ran a public consultation on ethnic disparities and inequality in the UK. This is what it said on their website, gov.uk. It read this. We know that there are ethnic disparities in educational attainment at school, in employment, in risk factors and outcomes for different health conditions, and within the criminal justice system. That's what it said on our government's website last year. The inequalities of the system, they're no secret and they're far-reaching. Last year, you may have seen it, a report was published. It was the independent review into the Windrush scandal. It's available online, and although shocking, it is highly educational as to the inequalities that exist, particularly in the UK Home Office and its systems, those systems that led to appalling mistreatment of British citizens who are part of the Windrush generation. That report, called out, and I quote, for a fundamental shift in the home office culture and the need for transformative change. This is the government structures that are responsible for massive areas like citizenship, immigration, policing, national security, and we're told they require transformative change. It brings me back to the words of Paul. He said there's a pattern in the world and its systems and they need changing. They perpetuate inequalities. And Paul says, don't be conformed, be transformed. Transformation is needed. It's needed in our systems. It's also needed in our minds. And it begins with understanding, recognizing, acknowledging. I won't for time this morning, but I could give you research findings from the British Medical Journal about the ethnic disparities for mothers 
and the risk of death in pregnancy and birth, which would mean that some mothers in our congregation would be five times more likely to die than others, simply because of inequalities in the system. I could relate to you research from Harvard Business School that sent out 1,600 applications for entry-level jobs with resumes for black and Asian applicants. And some included information that clearly pointed out the applicant's minority status. And in other applications, all those racial clues were removed. And even though the qualifications on the resumes were identical, those for whom the minority status of the applicant had been removed were consistently more successful. This racial inequality was perpetuated through the systems of employment. I could read UK statistics uh, from justice and policing just from 2020 that reflect that we have a system that disproportionately suspects, arrests, convicts, and imprisons black, Asian, and minority ethnic people. You may have seen in the news even just this week the spotlight again on the racial disparity that's manifest in the use of police stop and search powers or just yesterday the racial disparities in the current rates of employment and the economic fallout of the pandemic. There are racial inequalities throughout our systems. This is structural or systemic racism. Now, it's crucially important to say that we trust, we believe, and we pray for the blessing and the favor of God on his people, on all of his people, which we believe actually impacts an individual and a family more than any statistics. And we call don't live in fear of those statistics. But even as we say that and stand and pray, we must acknowledge that these inequalities exist in the systems of the society that we live in. It's not right that they exist, but it's a feature of the social and the economic and political landscape that we live in. And it impacts some brothers and sisters in this body all the time. And if we are going to be devoted to one another in love, as Paul calls us to be devoted to one another, if we're going to stand together as one body, then we must at the very least begin by acknowledging what they face. You know, if you haven't faced unfair treatment due to the color of your skin, at work or at school, in a healthcare setting, or when engaging with the police, or maybe the fear that you or your family would be treated unfairly somewhere in society, if you've never faced that, then you might, like me, be able to see that knowingly or unknowingly, you benefit. You have an advantage. You have, if you like, a privilege within the systems and the structures, within the inequalities that exist, that within them, people who look like me and maybe you find ourselves favored. This is often referred to as white privilege, the advantage of being identified as white and British. You may say, well, what, what do we do with that? Well, as a starting point, as we seek to stand together as one body in Christ, it's important that we at least begin by acknowledging this privilege. 
acts. Racial injustice is not limited to individual acts of malice. It's structural and it's systemic. And we desire and we will seek to learn and to pray and to act for this to change. Thirdly, this morning, the third truth I want to bring us to is that racial injustice is not for others to deal with, but it is everyone's business. It's not for others to deal with, it's everyone's business. Paul gives us this picture of one body, many members, one body, each member belonging to all the others. This is church. This is what the church is called to be. Now, of course, the church down the center is is not always responded to racial injustice by seeking to be the kind of body that Paul points us to be. Very far from it. The church has not always been the body of Christ seeking to honor one another above ourselves. In fact, in 2006, the then Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, led the Church of England to issue an apology for the church's complicity in sustaining and justifying and benefiting from the 18th century slave trade. The church has not always responded as it should have done in the face of racial justice. But we're the church, CLM, just a little part of God's global family in the here and now. And the question comes to us, how will we respond? There's no doubt that this journey is gonna require something from everyone if we're to be the kind of body that Paul describes, not just anti-racist, but a body with sincere love and devotion, with a genuine honoring of one another. To be one body requires all of us. You know, the subject of racial injustice can be the source of so much misunderstanding and pain amongst us. But we can choose together, as the Apostle Paul directs us, to hate what is evil. We can choose together to be devoted to one another in love. We can choose together to honor one another above ourselves. Together rejoicing with those who rejoice. Together mourning with those who mourn, regardless of the cause. But it's gonna require more than a task force. However brilliant they might have been, it's gonna require everyone. It's everyone's business. Many of us, perhaps all of us, are gonna need God's transforming work in us as we set out on this journey forward to stand together as one body against racial injustice. And the journey is gonna be different for different ones of us. Some of us are gonna have more work to do than others. Some are processing pain. And the main work of their journey is healing. For some of us, it is to learn, to listen, to read, maybe to engage in some of the resources that are on a website if you're not sure where else to start. And you know we've got a little bit of lockdown left. What better use of it than to engage and learn and educate on this that we might come out of lockdown, positioned to stand together better than we've ever done before, to grow in understanding and truth and for our minds to be renewed. The truth is every one of us has different experiences, different views, different responses. We've all got a different story and background, unique traumas and joys. We are many. We don't know someone else's circumstances until they tell us. 
And they may or may not be ready to tell us. That is okay. And we must not assume from the color of someone's skin, whatever it is, what their story might be or how they might feel. Because everyone is unique. We cannot know for sure who's confident and we don't know who's insecure. We don't know who feels intimidated and who's happy to talk. And we don't know who's journeying pain from this injustice or another. And we also don't know each other's hearts until we share them. And let me add that I'm sorry if you felt unable to share your pain in this matter with me. But God's word through the Apostle Paul comes to speak to every one of us and it reminds us that we are called to be one body. That racial injustice is not for others to deal with. It is everyone's business and it's gonna take a journey of transformation which begins with renewing our minds. It begins with truth. Of course, there's so much more that I could say. My time is more than over today, but here we are to make a start. And so as I conclude, Racial injustice is not confined to the past. It's a present and a current reality. It's not limited to individual acts of malice. It's structural and systemic, and it is not for others to deal with. It's everyone's business. So right now, I invite you here in the room, and I invite you at home to respond this morning. I'm gonna invite you in a moment to stand as a declaration, really as a response to make yourself available for this journey of standing together, that you would come and say, Lord, I commit. I don't want to conform to the pattern of this world. I want to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. So whether you're at home or whether you're here in the room, can I invite you to stand, to commit, to standing together as one body, to commit to standing against racial injustice, to make a declaration that with the help and the grace of Jesus Christ, by His transforming work in each one of us, that we will stand together, we will be one body as He calls us to be, as we stand against racial injustice. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your gospel and its power to transform. We thank you for your mercy that has rescued and saved every one of us and made us brothers and sisters in your body. And Father, we come and we say today that we are sorry where we have not been the kind of body that you call us to be. And we stand before you, Lord, scattered across our city, but you see everyone that stands. You see each one of us, the many that are part of your one body. And we, we confess and we declare and commit before you today that we want to stand together. And we pray for your help. We pray for your grace. We ask you, Lord, for your transforming power to enable us. We pray today for every person who needs healing, who has experienced pain and trauma, because of injustice of this kind, we ask that you would minister to them, heal their heart, 
Our desire is that the burden would be taken from them, Lord God, that we would carry it together. We pray, Lord, that for every one of us, we would know the truth. We would know what is true and it would renew our minds and that you would help each one of us to see all that we need to see. And we ask, Lord, that you would grant us the grace and the understanding to journey and to stand together with one another. And as we respond to you today, we make ourselves available that you would work in us by your Holy Spirit. And we thank you that you are able to do more than we ask or imagine through your power that is at work in us. And so we look to you and we trust you. Thank you, Lord Jesus.